take a girl and a guy and they fall madly in love and form a family. Sprinkle in some counseling degrees and a doctorate, a dream of transforming relationships as we know it. And 20 years later, we give you power couple Dr. Ray and Jean Ketkodian. And this is their podcast, Couples Synergy. Welcome back to another episode of Couples Synergy with Dr. Ray and Jean. I'm Dr. Ray. And I'm Jean. And this is our podcast about love, marriage, and relationships. Be sure to check us out online on our Facebook page and Instagram at Couple Synergy or our website, couplesynergy.com. And be sure to subscribe to our podcast or send us any suggestions on topics you'd like to hear more about. And now on to Couple Synergy, an in-depth look at love, marriage, and relationships, where we bring you our experience helping thousands of couples transform their relationships for nearly 20 years. You know, everyone says you should work on your relationship, but nobody teaches us how. So we've created this podcast to teach people what they can do to create the relationship they've always dreamed of with the partner they fell in love with. On today's podcast, we welcome Dr. Lori Watson. Thank you for joining us, Dr. L- Dr. Lori. Is that okay if we call you that? Yes, Dr. Lori is great. Thank you so much, Dr. Ray and Jean. I'm happy to be here. Thrilled to be talking about sex therapy and couples therapy and helping couples in both of these areas. That's awesome. Hey, this is going to be a really awesome topic. It's, I think it's a, a really important one. Mm-hmm. It is a topic that we run into many times when, when coaching couples. Um, and before, before we get into that, uh, Dr. Lori, can you talk a little bit about your background and you know your certifications and that sort of thing? Sure. I am a doctorate in sexology and I'm certified, I'm a certified sex therapist. I also am a licensed marriage family therapist. So I've been doing couples work for, do I dare admit this, about 30 years (laughs) and sex therapy for a good 20. And I, I run a clinic in North Carolina and then I have a podcast, Foreplay Radio with uh, George Fowler, who is a guru in couples therapy. So we, we do that together. And so we're fellow podcasters. Yes. And that's exactly how we found you. Yep. Yeah, an awesome podcast for all you out there listening. Thank you. You know, Thank it's really you. important in our field that, you know, someone can get a master's degree and a license to practice any form of counseling they want, whether it's depression, anxiety, family, couples, but there's not a specific specialty that the general population knows to look for. And what we found in working with couples that their intimate relationship is probably the most difficult thing to help them unravel and heal. And it's also the most powerful connection that they have. And so um, can you talk a little bit about those licenses and, and how you got to be an actual expert in this field as opposed to someone that just hangs out a shield, a shingle? Sure. So sex therapy is really, you have to kind of be an expert in both areas. You have to understand couple dynamics as well as specific body issues. Um, You know, some sex therapists, maybe, you know, you think about, they're just going to give you sex exercises and that's not really how I work. Um, I'm very concerned about um, helping people with the dynamics because I think that's where we get stuck. Most of the time we can figure out how to do it. But uh, a lot of the times the sexual relationship really gets caught in relational problems. So, you know, even frequency, you know, one person seems to want to do it a lot more and the other person not so much. And you think, well, that's just, you know, our chemistry, but it's more than that. And, you know, negotiating with couples and saying, well, why don't we just split that down the middle? And, you you know, instead of doing it three times a week, you only want to do it once every other week. Why don't you guys do it twice a week? That makes everybody unhappy. You know, so we don't want to make two people unhappy. We really want to find a place that as people talk about their intimate life, it's at a much deeper level where there's this understanding and love that allows them to see each other's needs and experiences and feelings and who they are. And that changes the negotiations completely. One thing we've noticed in not just our relationship, but in working with all the couples we've worked with is it seems to us that our sex our sexual life has a developmental process to it. You know, when you have small children that the hormones are different, the energy levels are different, you know, as you move through being with the same person for 20 years, you have a whole different level of 
being in this together and the things that, that you have common vision or affection or other things that are driving things long before it's ever in the bedroom. Have you experienced that as well? Sure. Yeah. And I am an author too. I wrote Wanting Sex Again, which was published uh, in 212. And in that book, every chapter, I talk about um, different issues that hang us up sexually. And one of them is this developmental idea that you have in terms of how it's different maybe when we have young children, what developmental problems need to be resolved that free up the bedroom. You know, so I call it the chore wars. Uh, you know, a lot of times resentment is the monster under the bed. You know, one person feels like they're doing more than the other. And, and that's the power struggle. And oftentimes that hangs up sex. Um, certainly postpartum, like you said, hormonally, there's, there's different things that are going on. You know, some of the doctors don't tell you that, gosh, you know, when you nurse a baby, you have this thing that's called prolactin, which is a hormone that's released and it lowers libido. Not only that, but it makes your vagina dry. Who knew? You know, and they don't necessarily offer vaginal estrogen like they should. You know, I tell all my postpartum mommies, go to the doctor, ask for estrogen, use it two weeks before you start back at sexual intercourse. It'll make it comfortable. And doctors, you know, I, I work with literally 6,000 doctors in my community. And we talk about this all the time. And they say, you're right, Lori, we should do that. We should do that. And then I have people refer to me from them. And I said, did, did they s send you here with estrogen? And no, <laughs> I'm like, oh my gosh, you know, this is something that is such an easy fix that is within the body and could help. But uh, I think doctors feel awkward about talking about sex. Hey, Laurie, before we go on, um, there's we're getting some feedback from the microphone as it's moving. I think it's hitting something. Okay. So just want that was me playing with this. Yeah, yeah. yeah there How about now? How That's about better. now? Yeah, mm -hmm. it's good now, right? Do you want me to say that over anything? Sure. Yeah, that would be good. That was good stuff. Okay. So where do um, the developmental so, piece of a relationship in the book that you wrote? Yeah. So, you know, I wrote a book called Wanting Sex Again, which goes through in every chapter. It's kind of a story about a different woman in every chapter. And I wrote it the way I like to read, which is I'm simple. I like to read you know, stories. And um, so some of it is about developmentally, as you spoke, um, you know, women who are struggling after birth or the chore wars where couples are struggling to find their new equilibrium after a child makes three instead of just two, you know, how, how do they do this so that it's fair? How do they divide up work? And I often say that resentment is the monster under the bed. Two things I think shut down sex the most in those years, which is really um, body image problems and also resentment. And those two are, you know, have to be resolved for us to freely enter uh, the sexual relationship. And in my book, I, I deal with all kinds of things, menopause, I deal with orgasm, how to have an orgasm, what's normal, um, you know, how to get comfortable with oral sex, everything from technique to relational dynamics. Again, I talk about this, this concept of the pursuer and the withdrawer in a relationship. And, and that to me is kind of the, my most central issue is that sex has a cycle in a relationship. Um, just like our emotions do. Oftentimes one person is the emotional pursuer. They want more talking and more connection, more time together. And the other person is kind of the emotional withdrawer. And they're like, you know, I feel a little suffocated by my partner's demands. I really want to uh, focus my attention on things outside the relationship like work. You know, I got to build my kingdom or hobbies or my other friends. And you know, that sets us up. One person says, you know, you don't spend enough time with me. And the other person says, well, you know, you demand too much of me. And, and sex is a very similar cycle, but separate and also impacted by the emotional cycle. So frequently there is a sexual pursuer and a sexual withdrawer. And in heterosexual couples, we find these often gender reversed. So the woman wants more connection emotionally, talking, feeling. Um, and the man wants more sexual connection, and he often experiences uh, sexuality as kind of his love language. That's where he feels the safest. 
but I mean, I'm sure you guys know this and have seen a thousand, this a thousand times where a woman will say, you know, I can't, I can't have sex with you unless I feel emotionally connected. And he says, well, okay, if you have sex with me, I'm going to feel safer and I'll be able to open up emotionally. The never so, ending stalemate, right? A never ending stalemate. Yeah. Exactly. And, and, you know, I'm, I'm glad you're, you're talking about this because it really shows the complexity of sexual health and also emotional health. I mean, there is just so much going on, you know, behind those closed doors that couples really don't talk about. You know, they yes. just think that we want to go back to the way things were when we were dating. You know, and the things that we tell couples is, is that you, you can't go back. You know, this is a forward progression and either you're, you're growing your relationship or the relationship is dying. And mm -hmm. sex is a huge part of that as well. And really, I would say, Dr. Ray, that the, the research demonstrates that people in long-term relationships can have optimal sex. They can have the best sex. They have more sex, more erotic sex, sex more frequently. So the hope is that as we develop courage, as we resolve these power struggles with each other, and as we grow in what I say is our erotic self, um, you know, who tells you when you get married Oh, by the way, you know, you're going to need to work on your own self-image. You're going to need to work on being courageous in talking about what you want sexually. Sex is something that takes a lot of work. We think that it should happen naturally, right? And it turns out sex is, doesn't actually happen very naturally. There's a lot of planning, a lot of work that goes into an ideal sex life. I think initially a person thinks about my sex life, like my individual sex life. And they're in the dating phases or in non-committed relationships. And, you know, when you're together with someone, and I really do think it's like that 20-year mark again, that it becomes our relationship, our sexual relationship. And what I do impacts him and what he does impacts me. And so you get more careful with that. And you're not so hidden, but you're more open and vulnerable and exposed Mm -hmm. so that there's very little now in between and it's all around us and we're in there together. Does that make sense? I, I think what you're saying, Jean, makes so much sense because you're really talking about couples who have formed one mind, mm -hmm. that they're aware of the fact that who I am is part of the sum, but together we can be something bigger than just ourselves. We belong to something bigger than ourselves. So I'm thinking about my impact on the coupleship, not just, you know, how my partner impacts me. Um, so yeah, I think that this idea of we're actually in an entity and, and we got to nurture that and feed that. And we are feeding ourselves erotically and emotionally. And both of those components are what makes sex great. Can you talk about an overview of what type of people seek out sex therapists? Like what issues sure. are they tending to? Sure. I would say many people should seek out sex therapy and don't uh, because of this idea, you know, sex is so complicated. Uh, I think it sounds a little crazy, you know, like what? Go see a sex therapist. That sounds like, you know, Barbara Streisand and the Fockers, some kook. <laughs> uh, my, my tagline in Raleigh is you'll like her. She's normal. <laughs> you know, just just a person um, who I happen to know a lot about sex and how to help people resolve that together. But I would say, you know, the top issue that couples come to me for, um, both heterosexual and gay and lesbian couples, is really about frequency. You know, there's a discrepancy, one wants more than the other, I would say, followed by um, discrete dysfunctions. So, a woman with anorgasmia, which is she's never had an orgasm, or she has orgasms, but not very frequently, or she can do it by herself, but she can't do it with her partner. Uh, men with ED and premature ejaculation, those are really common. And most of them, all of those last three that I talked about are usually really easily fixed. Um, so I would say, you know, run, don't walk to a sex therapist and, and get that resolved because it can make sex so much better and so much less stressful, um, less anxiety producing, you know, anxiety is this crazy thing in sex, you know, the more we worry about it, the more we have problems. I mean, if, if you're a guy and you have a little bit of um, premature ejaculation, and then you think, Oh, my gosh, you know, I don't want 
you know, I, I don't know if I want to initiate because I might climax too fast. I'll be humiliated. That, that just increases the tension. And men, it turns out, ejaculate for two reasons, erotic stimuli and tension, anxiety. So the more anxious they are about it, um, you know, the more it, the worse it gets. But we can help with those pretty simply. Hold on one second. Okay. Um, I always thought that going to a sex therapist meant that they were going to watch me have sex. Is that true? Is that a myth? Yeah, that's a myth, a big <laughs> myth. So sex therapy is all talk therapy. It's psychotherapy, just like a regular counselor. And I'm glad you brought that up. There's no nudity. There's no sexual touching. There's no touching between the therapist and the client. It's all about the clients with each other. They don't do that in front of us. We talk. Uh, and most of the time, you know, they come in and we take a sexual history, a relational history. Um, most of us are trained and talk easily about sex. So we set people at ease. You know, it, almost every person who's ever talked to me has said, you know, that was a lot easier than I thought it was going to be. You know, and by session three, they're pretty comfortable talking about stuff that you just, you don't talk about with, you know, your friends or ordinary people. But because we talk about it every day, you know, we have ways to make people feel comfortable with it and we're comfortable, not embarrassed by anything. So it, it's easier than it might sound. You know, I, I wanted to ask you about your thoughts on the media and sexual imagery, uh, pornography, just really we're being bombarded wherever yes. we go about what sex is supposed to be. Mm -hmm. Right. And I think a lot of people are, trying to compare themselves to this ideal or this fantasy. Yeah, I am so glad you asked me such an open question because I have lots of different thoughts. I will tell you, I got married before internet porn. So when I got married, the only way people could access porn was going down to the liquor store and asking the guy behind the counter, you know, could I have that magazine, which was embarrassing and awful. You know, it just wasn't accessible and available. And now, not only is it accessible, but it has impacted our culture in a huge way. Um, I, I feel really sorry for kids who are starting to have their first sexual experiences because they have tremendous pressure. They've seen glamorized depictions of the sex act hundreds and thousands of times. And so they are not necessarily going into this experience feeling, you know, just what does it feel like when somebody touches your breast for the first time or your genitals? I mean, that's such an electric, amazing experience. And instead, their minds are crowded with what they've seen, how they should perform. And, and I really think, you know, they are robbed of something that my generation had. Um, but I think in two ways, the media impacts us. First, in terms of our comparison, like you said, just our body. I mean, my grandmother immigrated to this country and never saw a glossy magazine. She did not go to the movies. There weren't really very many movies in her small town. The only one she compared herself to was Betty Next Door. You know, that was the only, it was women in her small com community that she said, you know, do I stack up here or not? And so there was a lot of just acceptance of ordinary bodies. You know, yeah, I'm pretty enough. You know, I'm as pretty as Mary Susie. And so it, you know, there was this sense of I'm good enough. And then with the media today, we all see supermodels. Every day we see supermodels, actresses on televisions, actors with incredible bodies, with chefs and personal trainers and plastic surgery, you know, and we're comparing ourselves to that and most of us feel not good enough, let alone porn, right? And the genitalia that's in porn um, is exaggerated. And I mean, I, people tell me all the day, you know, all day long, well, you know, Laura, I don't watch that kind of porn. I only watch the kind of porn where uh, it's real people uh, that have put a tape of themselves on the internet. And I said, you are watching real exhibitionists you are not actually watching real people have sex. You are watching a particular type of people who want to show off. And, and that is really different than how most people make love. And so, I mean, I, I just, 
the fear for the way this has changed our culture, it is not something about how to learn how to make love. I mean, women, most women, only about 7% now is what we're saying. Um, there was research that was like 15 to 20, but now the newer research is showing only 7% of women reach orgasm through sexual intercourse. Wow. Wow. That's so staggering. Think, think about what porn demonstrates that it's, she's reaching orgasm with a humongous penis that's thrusting, thrusting, thrusting for 20 or 30 minutes, which a would wear out most women and be painful. And B, that's not how she climaxes. And really, most women need extensive clitoral stimulation. So like 25 minutes, probably minimum for her to reach orgasm. And that's after she's entered the sexual relationship and the, the sexual experience and relaxed. So it takes women about 20 minutes to kind of let go of their day, their list. You know, the list is this taskmaster. I got all these things to do. Can I have sex when the dishes are dirty? Oh, my goodness. You know. And so they got to let go of that and come into the moment. And then once she feels somewhat aroused, she needs clitoral stimulation to reach orgasm. And porn is surely not showing that. Yeah, I've and noticed so, that. I always call it like uh, more preheating the oven. You can't just <laughs> go into the cold oven. It doesn't work for women anyways. The other yeah. thing I've noticed about porn is that it reverses the role. So where men are supposed to be the pursuers and and be the, the one that initiates, at least in the dating world, in the beginning of a relationship. And in sex, it's like the woman who just presents herself and turns him on and is the... The aggressor. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely porn shows women as the aggressor. And some women are. I mean, I, I definitely work with a lot of women that are sexual pursuers, but um, only really in real life about maybe 15, 20% of women are the ones who initiate more. And I mean, I, I think it can just be so disappointing, right? You know, men who feel like, well, you know, if I looked like that, then the woman would be really turned on by me. Or if I had that kind of magnetism or that size penis, then surely she would be after me like crazy. And it just sets us up for such failure and such disappointment. I, I understand it's erotic. I, we're not getting away from it. Our culture is seeped in, uh, steeped in porn. And I don't know men who don't watch porn. You know, any man I know. I, I mean, I had a friend who for about 10 years used to say, I, I really don't watch porn. I don't. And I, I believed him. And then one day, you know, several years ago now, he said, of course I watch porn, Lori. I was like, dang. <laughs> I thought there was one guy out there that didn't, um, but he does. And, and most, most men do. And I mean, it's just such a turn on. I, I really get that. I sympathize with it. I, I uh, actually, Lori, I, Dr. Lori, I actually don't watch porn. Oh my gosh. But I, I have to let amazing. you, I have to let you know that it, it has been kind of a reprogramming for me, you know, mm -hmm. as far as you know, when we're talking about the development the development of our relationship and our sexual life, you know, there was a time when when porn was, you know, part of our sexual life. But it is not something now because, you know, in order to get to those higher stages, right, those more vulnerable stages in a relationship, it, the focus has to be on the relationship. And when you start, you know, introducing or bringing in outside imagery, it, it really limits you, right? And it takes that focus off of your, your partner, right? right? And so that, that has been I, something I, we've learned. I got to say, I appreciate so much your vulnerability. I know this is public, and I appreciate you talking about that. I think that's incredible. And, and I think that it's smart, right? Because even if you're not longing for somebody else, that shows an experience that is really not the norm, and so it sets people up for disappointment. It sets up all of us for disappointment. You know, what's um, interesting disappointment. is... Yeah, go ahead. Um, I grew up like you. There wasn't internet porn. There was only, you know, the magazines at the stores. But you actually, he's younger than me. And that was your first exposure to sexuality, where mine was with a human being, you know. And so it was a thing that within our relationship took years and years and years for us to figure out, you know, and it really came down to how do you want to feel? 
right? Mm-hmm. And so there certainly were times that we both would have porn in part of our lives. And then, I don't know, one day, and I think it was a menopause thing a few years ago, I was like, I just can't have boobs in my face all the time because, you know, it's on Game of Thrones and it's on every show you're watching. And it's just yeah. like you're constantly in this hyper place. And I was like, I want to feel connection and peace and love and you know and so it was a big journey of ours as a couple and you know for me the journey was really about you know what what fire are you going to stoke here right Mm -hmm. and you know i read a book called uh the truth about men i don't know if you've you know uh, i have not read that book who Um, wrote it what's his name uh devon devon franklin is his name okay and you know he talks about uh the dog and the master you know within men and who are you going to actually be feeding here, right? Are you going to let the dog run your life or are you going to let the master run your life? And, you know, pornography is something, it really stokes a fire within men that is tied to resentment and pride and anger, you know, versus stoking that, that fire of love and connection and vulnerability, which is a lot more difficult and uncomfortable, but it is much more rewarding. Right. And so that's that's kind of the, the journey that I went through. And, mm-hmm. you know, something that I, I coach a lot of, you know, the men through as well, because, you know, porn is, as you said, it is everywhere. Right. And it is not going anywhere. Right. It's right. so accessible. In fact, there's a lot of studies coming out now showing how it's changing our, our brain. It's decreasing mm-hmm. our gray matter. And, you know, that that is what we need for connection. You know, yeah. and so it's it's really tearing apart this connection that is needed in healthy relationships. You guys, I appreciate this. Perhaps you've already shared this on your podcast, but I really appreciate you talking about this and your own struggle with it. That's, that's great. I, um, you know, I just think that it's, it's problematic. I would also have a word for parents here. You know, I, I know we can't stop, our children from finding it eventually, but I think we can stop them from finding it early. Right. And so I really highly encourage parents to put blocks on their computers and screens and phones. Block Reddit. My kids found some really horrible stuff through Reddit, violent stuff that was really terrifying. I mean, I just think we need to guard their minds for as long as we can because it's inappropriate for them to see this really titillating, exciting content and, and not know how to integrate it into their life where it's meaningful. So can you talk about, um, I'm just going to call it boundary violations. I don't want to specifically label it something like incest or rape, because I think a lot of young people, boys and girls have had people violate a, a boundary of their body And that carries a big weight through their lives. And I'm sure you deal with that in the work that you do. Can you talk about how those type of early experiences might affect someone sexually throughout their life? Sure. I mean, you're right. It's one of the main things we deal with in sex therapy and in couples therapy, right, is when somebody has been traumatized sexually um, and it can run the gamut. Uh, I had a girlfriend whose father walked in at night just without his bottom pajamas on and stood at the side of her bed, you know, and she grew up really feeling violated by that. Um, That was inappropriate. He was drunk, uh, you know, and she didn't need to see her father's penis. And then there are people who have been literally raped by their brothers and fathers and, I mean, with gross violation and trauma. Um, So trauma healing is is really important um, to do in order to have back our body and our soul and our full sexuality. And ironically, some people delay this healing work until they get married, until they're actually in this safe commitment. And then suddenly sex hits the brakes, right? They they suddenly have these memories emerge or maybe they don't have full access to the memory, but they have a turnoff to sexuality. And they're like, why now? You know, I was sexual before. And their partner is like, why now? You know, you were sexual before. And why would it come out now? And I really think it's a gift. 
you know, within the safety of a committed relationship is the time to heal and it can be healed. And I probably believe that trauma is stored in the body, which is also where sex lives and where our emotions live. So getting to a good trauma specialist who works from a body perspective, um, who might understand sexuality is important. I, I personally don't ask that the couples stop having sex. I try to train them what to do when a sexual memory emerges or a sexual a feeling of anxiety gets too great to continue and i have people do head to heart exercises before they're in a sexual moment so let's say it was uh the woman who was violated and a, a lot of boys have been violated too but um, if she has a memory emerge then i say okay stop the sexual encounter put your head your head on his heart and the heartbeat is something that regulates us and calms us uh, and just, you know, hold on to each other. And oftentimes with that permission, like, okay, I don't have to go through with something when I'm feeling highly anxious or if I've remembered something, I can get comfort in that moment, allows the couple to continue to be sexual during the healing process. Not always, but often. You know, and I think also if you've, experience something like that initially you might become a sexually aggressive person as a way to feel more in control and then when you're safer in a relationship that's when you're like okay now all this stuff is coming up and it's and it's getting in the way of our intimacy because it's more intimacy than just a sexual act you're absolutely right i mean promiscuity is often a sign of trauma you know their body has not been respected and so they don't respect their body either they just give it away in, in hopes of experiencing something, some sensation, something that makes them feel alive again because maybe they feel kind of dead on the inside. Yeah, you're right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, I, um, I'm working with a, a client right now who has a lot of self-esteem issues around sex. Uh, he is um, divorced, and in his marriage, he was often shamed you know, about not being able to perform or perform in the way that she wanted him to. And so now dating, he is finding himself, you know, very, very much insecure and full of shame. And he actually went to his doctor to prescribe him Viagra because he is so um, concerned about not being able to perform. And I'm seeing a lot more clients, a lot more male clients you know, coming to me and talking to me about these types of issues, you know, having these, this insecurity and, and this inability to perform. Are you seeing some of the same kind of things? Absolutely. And with premature ejaculation. And, um, you know, I just hate this for him. I'm sorry, especially if he's the listener. I'm really sorry that that happened, you know, because a relationship, a bad relationship can do a number on us in terms of our sexual self-esteem and you know if he was shamed for not performing I it's probably rightfully so going into a new sexual relationship he's going to be highly anxious and you know the penis is truly (laughs) impacted by anxiety both ways men can climax too quickly or um, they can lose their erection not get an erection I I don't think that it's a bad strategy to use Viagra I, I would say use it every single time. Um, don't don't not take it and hope that you um, you know are going to be aroused enough and because it is a little backup guarantee. And if he's that anxious, I would say yes, that's that's probably appropriate. As is medication for premature ejaculation in new situations. Um, you know, and I think what really hurts. A female partner in those situations, and maybe I'm, you know, need to generalize a male partner as well, would be um, the disconnect that happens when dysfunction happens. You know, so let's say he loses his erection. You know, I think men feel this humiliation and shame about that, and then they cut off from the experience. They they climb out of bed, feeling bad. They leave the partner in bed feeling high and dry and like, what's wrong with me? Because we all personalize things. It's like, oh, did your penis not work because I'm not as very attractive? 
versus maybe teaching him to say, you know what, not my night, baby, but let me help you. Let me make it really good for you. He can give her oral sex. He can give her manual stimulation, make her climax and talk to her about her beautiful body, how attracted he is to her. And most women are going to rate that a very high sexual experience, regardless of whether intercourse took place or not, because she doesn't necessarily need intercourse to reach orgasm. She may not even reach orgasm that way, right? Odds are that she won't. And so if he's staying in the game and connected and letting her know how valuable and sexual he finds her, that that is really another path that can help him. You know, it's like try to defocus on yourself and put the focus on your partner, even your new partner, and reassure them. You know, one of the things we know is that we get wounded through relationship and we heal through relationship. And yes. I would say that this would be an excellent opportunity because that's something coming up for healing, something old and deep that if you lean into whatever is going on and not necessarily in that moment, because that's not the right time to process it. But when you guys are calm and, and later on, really go into a deep conversation about what was going on for you and it can really drive connection instead of the disconnection. So, you know, we always say it's advantageous to avoid pain if it's physical. You know, you shouldn't drop a hammer on your foot, but it's advantageous to lean into emotional pain. And those yeah. things are always going to come up when we're trying to be intimate and it's bumping into an old wound. And that's an excellent time to work on healing. Those are the type of things that we teach couples how to do that process outside of, of that experience. That's beautiful, Jean. Mm -hmm. I love that. So have you noticed any difference? You know, we work with uh, gay and lesbian couples as well and heterosexual, primary, primarily heterosexual, just because that's who's come to us. But do you notice a difference in their sexuality or is it similar? I'm sorry, I, I missed part of the question. My, my earphone wasn't. Okay. Can you go again? Yep. So we deal with heterosexual couples primarily, but also we have gay and lesbian couples we've worked with. Have you noticed a difference in their sexuality or are we all just human beings and it's all kind of the same? I think that the sexual cycle of pursue withdraw is very familiar across genders uh, and gender orientations. So that piece is similar. I think there are differences uh, with lesbian couples. You know, oftentimes you're dealing with two people who don't have high testosterone. Um, often one of them still is the sexual pursuer and prefers more sexual encounters, um, but it's not driven in the same way that it would be in a heterosexual couple with testosterone. So both men and women have testosterone. Men have it in copious amounts, usually, and women don't. Um, you know, often a hundred times more in a male. And so in gay couples, I think some of what we see is the, the type of sex, like the drive for sex is very similar in both men, but um, the differences might be, you know, their decisions about monogamy, um, how they're going to express this sexuality. I, I mean, it, there are differences that I think are about the sexual cycle, but not necessarily about drive and drive differentials in the way that there is in a heterosexual couple. You know, you mentioned uh, decisions about monogamy. I was wondering about your thoughts on polyamory and mm -hmm. open relationships. It's a good question, and I think it's a media-driven question. Um, there is a lot of press right now about the choices of open relationship or not. You know, I work from something called attachment theory, which is a scientifically researched theory. And I, I probably tend toward thinking that most people want to be special in somebody's eyes and that that specialness includes a monogamous sexual relationship. Although I'm not the judge, you know, we work with people who are polyamorous and whatever conflict they're experiencing you know, we can help and talk about that, but I probably, um, the bulk of whom I see is couples who have chosen monogamy, which has its own special problems. I mean, polyamory is resolving one problem, right? It's resolving a problem they believe about sexual variety and introducing the newness and the excitement of a new sexual relationship with some frequency. 
Um, so I, but there are other problems that come with it. And I think many people who decide to uh, this as a trial are not aware of and haven't negotiated and figured out all the other conflicts that might occur too. Um, so, I mean, it, I'm, I'm not here to judge. I think attachment theory generally is um, this issue of, I want somebody to deeply, deeply know me, my soul, my body. Um, but I understand people make other choices and they have other value systems. So how about the topic of infidelity? And in particular, not uh, someone who's a serial cheater and not healthy and shouldn't probably be in the relationship, but a loving couple that for some reason, their relationship deteriorated to the point where one person went astray and then they're fighting to get that back, their their connection. How, what's been your experience with that? Yeah, I think about infidelity as something that often does happen uh, in a marriage. It doesn't happen in a vacuum. You know, most people who cheat are not bad people. Um, and most people who are cheated on, you know, it's not fair. You know, th this is the, the bind. The person who acted out says, you know, I'm not a bad person. I just couldn't figure out any other way to get my needs met. And much of the time it is sexual, but a lot of times it's also, um, I, I wanted something else emotionally that became sexual um, and I couldn't seem to get it in this relationship. And I, I have seen infidelity as something that is not necessarily a marriage ender. I mean, I think that it's a huge, huge problem. It's, you know, um, definitely a deep wound that cuts to the core when you promise monogamy, to, you know, infidelity to somebody. But there are reasons for it. And I'm not excusing it. And I think the person who acts out and chooses that path is solely responsible for that choice. But the two of them are responsible for the marriage before and after. And I think that they can learn from it. I'm, I'm dealing with a couple right now. And, you know, um, he's had a series of escorts and prostitutes and affairs. And really, as we've analyzed it, um, he's a withdrawer. He's both a sexual and an emotional withdrawer, ironically. And um, he just didn't have the ability to negotiate sex with his partner. And she wasn't terribly sexual. And so for him, rather than dealing with that and all the conflict that that would bring, he's like, fine, I'll just split this part off. I'll have it over here. And one of the things we've discovered in our work together is that of course he was comes from a trauma background for very good reasons. He did not want to get into a messy argument or messy conflict with anybody because it reminded him of the, the terrible trauma of his childhood. And, you know, so this was a way out, you know, and fortunately she has like a big enough lens on it that she can see that. I mean, she's really, really betrayed and she can hold that too. She can hold her own hurt and also kind of expand beyond that and to see that, hey, this doesn't mean that you're just bad and that I can never ever trust you, but there's something going on in you that maybe together we can understand. And, and you know, I, I don't tell people that I'm the decision maker on whether they should stay or not, but I can help them figure out, as I'm sure you guys do, figure out what happened before, why now, why did you act out at this point? What does it mean? What does it mean to the two of you? What would it take to heal you? What what has happened sexually between the two of you? You know, did you ever have a language? Did you ever develop sexually in a way that that was really on track? Um, you know, and and having some grace for yourselves because this is a start stop process. You know, people who are dealing with affairs and you know they have seasons where it's almost like having PTSD. You know, flashbacks and high anxiety, it's like their world gets turned upside down. And then there are times where they grow in meaning and understanding with each other. I, I, I think my stance is it doesn't have to mean the end. It actually can, when it's worked through, make the two of you stronger and have a better bond, which, uh, you know, it's, it's quite a bit of work, but it can happen. Yeah, very hard earned. Can you talk about the difference between porn addiction and sex addiction and how that affects our intimate relationship? 
Sure. Um, you know, and there's there's also a lot of media on is there such a thing as porn addiction or sex addiction? I, I probably think there is. Um, I, I think that there's a compulsivity, right, that can happen where the impetus is to have an orgasm to the exclusion of maybe family time, work time, production time, and intimacy. You know, so sensation replaces connection, and that can be really problematic, especially when the person who is more sexually compulsive is hoarding their body. You know, I would rather have sex than be sexual with you. That's a huge problem. And I don't necessarily think that it's, um, if you're the partner to say, well, clearly you're a sex addict or clearly you're a porn addict. I don't know that that's the smartest tactic. It's saying, look, at I have some really deep concerns. We're not being very sexual here. And I know you use porn and, you know, we got to talk about this. We got to get some help because that's too much. Um, but I do see people who destroy their lives um, in the same way that any kind of addiction would destroy a life, whether it's alcohol or substance or porn. I mean, they're not working. What do you think you know? is the or reason? Or they're doing things that are illegal. What? What do you think is the reason that someone who um, uses a lot of porn stops wanting to have sex with their actual partner? Because that, that is definitely something that we see a lot. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think you talked about it, Dr. Ray, in terms of, the brain changes. And I think like, you know, some of us can drink a glass or a couple glasses of wine at night and not be alcoholic. But a substance is something that has its own power too, and influences a person, you know, and if you have a susceptibility to addiction, it can be problematic. And I think what makes all of us susceptible to addiction is lack of connection. You know, we have a hole in our soul, right? There's something that we're trying to fill. And then once we get into a substance, it like takes us over. And, you know, pornography can do that. And, you know, so can drugs and alcohol or gambling or any process addiction. Yeah, what really is um, kind of sad to me is this growing trend of like a asexual, you know, people people who are so afraid of that connection, you know, with another human being, or they're afraid of doing the work to be that vulnerable with someone else, right? And that high risk of rejection and abandonment that they would rather not have any relationships. I think there's a, there's a whole counterculture that's happening in Japan where, you know, a younger generation are, are not having any relationships, you know, with anyone. They work from home Everything is all virtual, and so there's that complete disconnection. And, and I, we're seeing a lot, lot more with the younger generations. Now. And I think the lockdown during COVID has increased that with some people. Yeah, I don't, I don't know if you're seeing some of the same trends at all. So I, in my doctorate work, um, I did a little research on asexuality. And, and right now, they have. this is not terribly popular, but... They really haven't proven that that's a gender orientation. They, they show more of this being um, indicative of trauma or sort of like a ultimate withdrawal position um, where they have made inner decisions to not need, you know, and so, and some of these people like in Japan, they, they may be asexual with partners, but they may be masturbating and having an internal and um, solo sex life. So I, I think that's different than people who say, look, I have no drive. But but some people who are asexual actually still have a sexuality and a masturbation practice. Um, you know, I, I tend to think of sex as a life force. It prompts us to connect. And I think there's injuries in our childhood primarily, and certainly in relationships where people decide, mm, I'm not safe to do that. I don't want to do that. And so then they make decisions just to relieve themselves, but not to let sex be the impetus that pulls them toward another. Yeah. And I would say that there is definitely a skill 
and a muscle like working out in order to learn to relate to another person and to learn to be vulnerable and learn how to feel safe within your own ability to respond to rejection and things like that. And so I just wanted to close with, can you talk about if someone is considering using, um, coming and talking to a sex therapist, what would you say to them? Well, I would say that they're very brave and courageous to address this head on, you know, to think about this as such an important part in their life that they really want to get clarification and healing. So, I mean, bravo, if you do that and, you know, I, I think that sex therapy can help. It's, it's so efficient in terms of sexual dysfunction. And I think it's also helpful to see a sex therapist who's a couples therapist for disconnection. You know, and there's two different parts, right? I mean, our bodies and the way it works and maybe a few things that we can learn to more skillfully produce better pleasure. But also um, the main thing is what do we do when we're disconnected with a partner? And how, do, how does the sexual cycle and the emotional cycle impact um, each other? And if people want more information on Dr. Laura Watson, you can also tune into her podcast, uh, Four Play Radio. Four Play Radio, Couples and Sex Therapy. And mm-hmm. We're on, we're everywhere. Yeah, so iTunes and wherever you and find we'll put podcasts. A, we'll put a link and we'll in the show notes. And we'll definitely put links in the show notes. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Mm-hmm. I'll send you my pod link. That'd be awesome. Always easy. Okay, great. Dr. Lori, thank you so much for being on our podcast. This has been informative for us as well mm-hmm. as it will be informative for all of our listeners. Well, thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. You guys sound like you're doing really good work. Thank you. I'm thank honored you. to be here. Yeah, yeah people you. have been, you know, sharing their stories and healing through relationship and we hope that by listening to this episode it's helping your life and your relationship we want to wholeheartedly thank you for joining us today and for listening to couple synergy our passion is in helping couples and people have happy and healthy relationships and this podcast gives us a fun way of bringing our knowledge and expertise to you our listeners For all of you listening, please subscribe to our podcast and please leave us a review. If you have any questions, comments, or topic suggestions, please email us at contact at couplesynergy.com. For more information about Couple Synergy and our programs such as Relationship 101, the Couples Weekend Intensive, and our premier program called Couple to Couple, look us up online at couplesynergy.com. And if you know someone who could benefit from this episode, please download it and share it. And thank you for listening. Until next time. Synergize your life and synergize your love. You have been listening to Couple Synergy with Dr. Ray and Jean Ketkodian. Couple Synergy was recorded, edited, and produced by Dr. Ray and Jean Ketkodian. Voiceover and music entitled Breathe and Let Go was recorded and composed by Gina Gonzalez.